Hello, horror movie fans. Congratulations, you are just crazy enough to be listening to a podcast hosted by three deranged dudes who study these silly flicks like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Zapruder film, or the feed of insta-famous icons, depending on which decade you're from. I am John Evans, and this is Marsh Mad Men, the show that promises you that we will suss out what is the greatest slasher film of all time. 64 films entered our tournament, and only one shall emerge with the ultimate bragging rights. Tonight's recording session will settle three first-round matchups, and I, for one, am pumped to get into the head-to-head analysis. Blood will be spilled, friends and neighbors. Blood will be spilled. But before that first contest tips off, I have to introduce my absurdly insightful co-hosts and partners in slime. They are Vikram Wheat, the writer of Devil's Pass, certainly Rennie Harlan's best horror movie, and Emmy-nominated TV producer Rich Eckersley, who I believe knows Kevin Hart personally. Well, I, I, I think he's got his phone number. Anyway, let's go around the horn and see how the guys are doing tonight. First, as Simon might say, Hello, Vikram. That was pretty good, John. Thank you. Uh, I, I do want to cast a vote for Deep Blue Sea as possibly Rennie Harlan's best horror film. I don't know if that uh, if that qualifies as a horror film, but I'm not sure it does. But fair, <laughs> fair. I, I, it doesn't matter. I would vote for Devil's Pass over Deep Blue Sea. Sorry, sorry, all cool J. You know what? Me it too. Is, it is it is head and shoulders above the Covenant. So uh, I, got, <laughs> I got that. <laughs> Vic Dishon uh, shooting, as they say, on Rennie Harlan. Sorry, Rennie. Uh, you know I love you. <laughs> that's going viral all right and speaking of going viral rich i i that's not a good segue but hopefully uh you're not viral how are you doing buddy <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say quite the opposite I, it's, it seems like i i may i might be uh the last mark madman standing over here when it comes to not catching the big the big c i guess it's not the big c that's it's, already it's, spoken it's, for him <laughs> This is the this is the small sick. Yeah. Um I'm COVID free over here, still still in my hermetically sealed bubble. I'm excited to see Vic back in the box back at his uh, home recording studio after some time away in an undisclosed location. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm good. I'm I'm hanging in there. I've been I've been jamming the movies in, which is impressive. Uh, I think we're given my schedule. So yeah, I'm ready to go. Yeah, we're impressed and appreciative. I'm, I'm not impressed, Rich. Congratulations on doing the bare minimum. Well done. <laughs> he like watches the movies and stuff. <laughs> doing the, yeah. the exact thing that we all agreed we would do before showing up here. <laughs> I'm kidding, Rich. I do, know your, I do know your schedule and I am impressed. We're all appreciative. I'm sure the listeners are too. That uh, we put the insane amounts of time that we do into this show. Hopefully you'll enjoy it, and let's get right into the meat of the matter. And that is our first matchup, which is in the peak franchise division, which of course is dealing with the household names of the slasher movie subgenre. And tonight we have the number two seed in that regional, so to speak, Halloween, John Carpenter's original will square off against Maniac Cop, which comes in with a ranking of number 15. 
So on paper, this is a mismatch, folks, but let's see what happens. Vic, I do believe you're going to do the honors of introducing the heavyweight contender tonight. Tell us about Halloween. Well, John, I want to start by announcing my vote for Maniac Cop. Oh, by the way, um, while I'm being a poor host, um, what are we drinking tonight, guys? Because I, I think we should start with that, and I'm going to crack... A Goose Island IPA, nothing glamorous, Chicago's finest IPA, probably, but uh, that's what I'm drinking. How about you, Vic? John, that's a lie. That's a Sprite. I can see it. <laughs> I, you know, it's basically a Sprite. They are owned by, a, I believe they're an InBev company, right? So that's, yeah. that's the Budweiser. Yeah, that checks out. Uh, the Budweiser. <laughs> I'm kidding. Love, love Goose Island. Love Chicago. I am drinking a, a Belgian uh, Parat, lovely golden ale. Who's like Vic trying to impress in Chicago? Like, do we have a lot of fans in Chicago? Or are we just trying to garner fans in Chicago? <laughs> I have nothing Chicago. bad to say about Chicago. Yeah. I'm kind of from yeah, Chicago. You guys, yeah, you guys got good meat out there. Men do it. That's <laughs> they got good meat and good beer. Yes, I love Chicago. Fair enough. Fair and enough. the beers. The beers. All right, uh, Rich, how about you, buddy? Uh, what what flavor of Chardonnay are you putting away tonight? I'm, I'm finishing a Cabernet, but you know, for the for the sake of theatricality, I'll go and crack open my uh, my Pizza Port Chronic Ale. Nice. Ooh. Um, now is that a amber or something? It's not an IPA, right? It is an amber. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the few non IPAs they make. If you don't like your hops so much, it's a good way to go. It's also got a low ABV, which makes it good for a polished podcast, yes. such as the one that we're about to record. The session IPA is like a podcasting session IPA. Yes, I I agree. I, I will say, I, and I actually think Pizza Ports. I think it's called Ponto. Excellent session IPA. Actually, one of my favorites. Unsurprisingly, sorry. He's in the bag for Pizza Port, folks. Let's just be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I I drink it too. Obviously, yeah, it's awesome. Well, I think we've covered the what are we drinking section. So now, I'm sorry, Vic. Take it away. Tell us about this obscure 1978 film. Well, you just took my lead, which was from 1978, but that's fine. <laughs> now all your notes have to go out the window. <laughs> exactly. Halloween, uh, made in 1978, directed by John Carpenteria? No, Carpenter. Obviously directed by the great John Carpenter. On a $300,000 budget, he grossed $70 million. Uh, at the time. It was the most successful independent film until The Blair Witch Project many, many, many years later. Honestly, it's, it's hard to find more things to say about Halloween. Obviously, we did, we've, we've talked a lot about the franchise as a whole. Of course, I found some things to say. It's easily one of the, the greatest and most influential horror films of all time. I think that the seeds of the slasher film that were planted in earlier films like Psycho and Peeping Tom and Black Christmas, but this is when they sprouted into a fully formed subgenre. Michael Myers is the slasher that launched a thousand slashers. Everyone wanted to reproduce the profit margins, but few people appreciated all the elements that went into making it so successful. There is something in Halloween for everyone. If you want violence, there's plenty of it. There's teenagers pinned to walls. There's Michael's horrific murder tableau, which would also become part of the template for the genre. If you want titillation, there's Bob and Linda. But even more effectively, John, I know you agree with me, there's Nancy Loomis's Annie sporting her panties and button-up shirt for a substantial part of the film. 
If you want dynamic filmmaking, there's Carpenter's virtuoso opening shot, a single-take POV that lasts for four minutes. If you want psychological depth, you've got Dr. Loomis and his breathless descriptions of Michael's madness. The score by Carpenter is legendary, and if you want to be scared, well, it's still one of the scariest films ever made. When I was a teenager, I was stoned to the bejesus and lying on my couch watching a well-worn VHS copy of Halloween for probably the 10th or 12th time. And it got to the scene where Michael is chasing Lori across the street and she's banging on the door for the kids to let her in. Suddenly, there was a noise in the back of my house. Now, it turned out that some Christmas lights that we had up had fallen down and knocked something over. But in that moment, I was so fucking terrified that I couldn't get up to see what it was. I just sat frozen on my couch and waited for Michael Myers to come out of the darkness and stab me with a knife. I would not have put up the fight as stoned as I was that Lori did. I think it's still not that powerful. I can't wait to show it to my kids, and maybe I'll do it this weekend. They're five and eight. They're ready. Yes, absolutely. I think three and a half is the ideal age to introduce Halloween. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Uh, Rich, what do you? Uh, how do you want to weigh in here on this, what's clearly an all-time classic of film in general, let alone slashers? What is there to say? Jamie Lee Curtis is perhaps... This performance is perhaps the most iconic in this competition, maybe. And Steve Miner's directing and Michelle Williams and Josh Hartnett turn in virtuoso performances. That, oh, shit. That was the wrong Halloween movie. Um, which one? Is, oh, right. Okay. You're no, damn one. right that's the wrong Halloween movie. <laughs> um, or is he? I came to this movie... A little bit late. I think I was I was aware of this movie. If anything, I was more aware of Halloween three growing up, and that was like the movie that I that I saw over and over again. I can't tell you exactly how that ended up happening. Vic really kind of brought this movie back onto my radar again. He loaned me a copy, which I think I might still have on on DVD. I think I eventually replaced it with my with my own copy. But, you know, so I saw it again, like, I really got to fall in love with this movie later in my life, which is interesting, especially considering that this film actually, to to completely date myself, this movie was released almost exactly a month before I was born. This thing is is an interesting way to sort of, like, look back at at my life and, and see, like, how horror has evolved just over this time period. And the crazy thing is that in many ways you can see evolutions in horror where it's unrecognizable from what you see in Halloween, but in other ways, almost every horror movie you watch, even today, you can find something that traces back to this film. If not because it originated in Halloween, then because it was perfected in Halloween and everything else is still trying to ultimately catch up to it. Like it's just an extremely effective Sort of simple film, but something that really thrives on how straightforward it is about this tale of a woman being stalked, of a madman on the loose, and a doctor trying to quell the terror that he allowed to be unleashed in the world. It's a classic for a reason. It's just a, it's a perfect work. Yeah, if you were going to take a checklist of things that they took from Psycho, God knows anything before that, TCM, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 1973, Black Christmas, around the same time. The slasher template was created with elements of all of these films, but I think the most DNA does stem from Carpenter's Halloween. 
Bruce, I want my DVD back, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Never again, it, Vic. I'm, I'm actually pretty sure I still have your DVD cover, and I still have your copy of the thing for the the thing from outer space is actually in the DVD box. So the DVD lo- is lost. I only have the cover. It's the thing from another world. Thing from another world. Thank you. Yeah. Which which is a really interesting. Uh, it's interesting that that's the DVD that ended up in that case since it's featured in, in the film. Indeed. Yeah. Wow, that's kind of mind blowing in a strange way. I'm going to introduce Maniac Cop, but I will say about Halloween. What's to say about Halloween? You know, we've already covered this movie ad nauseum. Uh, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to our podcast that was devoted. A season of the show was devoted to Halloween movies. And also, we're going to keep talking about this movie, uh, presumably, for hours to come. I'm going to save it for those shows. And that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not going to enjoy revisiting Halloween or finding new things to talk about it. I, I'm sure I will. Because, yeah, this is fertile soil. It's, as, as Rich was alluding to, many, many slashers have sprung full-grown and ready to wreak havoc from the seeds planted in Halloween. But for now, I'll just say it deserves its number one seed, and we're probably a long way from having any serious conversations about it losing in our little tournament. John, I believe Halloween is a two seed. I, I, I said that it should be a one seed, and, and you, uh, you and Rich voted me down there. Vic, why are you always undermining me? <laughs> no, you're speaking, right. Speaking of minors, we're going to talk about My Bloody Valentine 3D later. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. But uh, now that Iago is done whispering in my ear, I'm going to talk about (laughs) Maniac Cop. (laughs) Okay. No, no, no. Vic, you're right. You're absolutely right. But uh, Maniac Cop is a film as classy as the title promises. It was directed by William Lustig from a script by producer Larry Cohen whom any horror historian worth their salt knows for films such as It's Alive, The Stuff, Q, and many more. Well, this movie is as New York as thin crust pizza and stained subway seats. Released in 1988, which is very late, I think, in the original slasher movie cycle, Maniac Cop stars Robert Zadar in the titular, the title role, I'm not going to go for titular, Bruce Campbell, Tom Atkins and Lorene London. And if you don't know the name Lorene London, she has seven movies in the pipeline. So, yeah, she's, uh, she's still working, folks. Put her on your radar. So this movie's tagline was, you have the right to remain silent, dot, 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 forever. <laughs> Every time you throw like an ellipsis into a, a tagline, it's going to be a winner. Yes. But, but yeah, they sure, they stuck it. <laughs> I, I take great pleasure in the taglines, I have to say. That's one of my favorite part about these. Um, maybe it's because of my copywriting background, but uh, there's a lot of good taglines in our field. Here's the logline according to IMDb user Mr. John Barrymore, obviously of the famed Barrymore clan. Innocent people are being brutally murdered on the streets of New York City by a uniformed police officer. As the death toll rises and City Hall attempts a cover-up, 
Frank McRae heads the investigation. A young cop, Jack Forrest, finds himself under arrest as the chief suspect, having been the victim of a setup by the real killer and a mysterious woman phone caller. Forrest, his girlfriend Teresa, and McRae set out to solve the puzzle before the maniac cop can strike again. So this film flopped upon its initial release and was widely panned by critics, but it soon found a second life in the home entertainment sphere. And of course, it spawned two sequels. Noel Murray of the AV Club rated it B- and called it a goofy film that was always meant to inhabit the shelves of independent video rental stores. And reviewing the Blu-ray release, Jay Hurtado of Twitch Film wrote that despite its faults, Maniac Cop deserves mention as one of the last grindhouse films set in the Big Apple. Well, my opinion is generally in line with that. I've seen this movie twice now since we decided on covering slasher movies for our second season. And while the film is artistically underwhelming, I think that in a vacuum, it has a strange charm. Whether you classify Maniac Cop as grindhouse or B-grade or video store quality or some other, the opposite of a left-handed compliment, a right-handed insult, I think the fact remains that this movie has no pretensions at all about what it is or isn't. It's a grimy, undemanding, late-night drive-in programmer, and I think it wears that badge with pride. While from a filmmaking standpoint, this movie is just competent enough to be taken seriously while you watch it, it's also just ridiculous enough to laugh at along the way. If you're in the right mood, man, that's, that's fun. It's a hoot. And what else do we really want from a slasher movie? No, Maniac Cop is not going to upset Halloween. But I do think this movie deserved to be in our tournament because it's far more fun than the average slasher movie out there. And I personally think we could talk for a couple hours about this movie, the good and the bad and the ugly. It's a product of its time and its place. And I think that's something, it's got something to offer anyone who appreciates those things. I know I do. It rises a little bit above that sort of drive-in programmer status. I mean, not least because, A, it has Tom Atkins and Bruce Campbell. But also, I really like there's a, a, a narrative switcheroo at the second plot point that I won't, uh, I, I won't disclose. It does something kind of novel with the story, and it sort of switches protagonists. And I thought that really, that really worked. And then the other thing is, I, I'm curious to know if you guys felt this same thing. I was, was kind of stunned and shocked. To find, I mean, you know, 30 years before George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, there is a couple of references to not just police brutality, obviously, it's Maniac Cop, but specifically being directed against uh, uh, black people and people of color. Television interviews and stuff, it's not what I would call like a theme or anything to it, but it really, it, it sort of shocked me to see that in a grindhouse drive-in movie from from. 1988. It's the kind of thing that people are saying in much more mainstream films now, and obviously in, in much more artistic and, and in-depth ways. Nevertheless, it's not saying much, but it's saying something. I picked up on that, too. It's an interesting point. I mean, like, this is still like a movie that's post-1963, so it's like, it's not surprising that people would be aware of it and that media would even sort of be calling it out. I think you're right that, like, it's a little surprising 
to hear that mentioned in a film of this caliber. I say that in the sense of like, I didn't think much of the caliber of this film. Although I, I will agree with you, Vic. I, my notes have a distinct shift that happens around that shift in the, the protagonist. And I really made a, a, a note in here that like, you know, this is not like psycho or even like a, a place beyond the pines, but like, this is still like noteworthy storytelling for, for a film like this. And I think what you're putting your finger on is that this movie is not high quality. It does not have high aspirations. And yet, like every now and then it is doing these little things that sort of surprise you and, and elevate it from what could have been sort of a, a painful watch, which for me, like, unfortunately, the the the, the Tom Atkins anchored first act i guess act and a half john you're the you're the really the, the screenplay <laughs> format nerd so you tell me i found that part like a little more tedious like the to me that the kills felt so random and and meaningless maniac cop was so sort of like obscured and like it was just like you know like crazed killer like terrorizes the city tom atkins is just kind of playing that like a gruff cop on a mission who just like you know like they won't let him on the beat it felt like bad TV drama. But I do think that Bruce Campbell and the role that he plays in this film like ends up kind of elevating it to something that more fits John's description. And like it became a ride, certainly in the later later in the in the film. I just want to point out real quick just a, a quick uh, anecdotal beat here that when Bruce Campbell became a major player in the story, my wife who had like kind of like been like doing chores around the house stopped what she was doing as she walked by. She saw Bruce Campbell on screen and she goes, Hey, is that the guy from the tree raping movie? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's fair for contemporary audiences to be most struck by the tree raping scene in evil dead. I I think that that, that's a very valid response. (laughs) It's it's fair. I told her, I was like, like, that is good uh, applied horror knowledge. honey." Way to go. <laughs> I've only read up a, a bit on Larry Cohen, but, I, but I've always found him very interesting. I was a big fan of the stuff as a kid. Mm-hmm. I know that he was a fan of, of capturing real-life events without a permit and just sort of incorporating them into the film. That's right. Like you see that with the police uh, St. Patrick's Day parade in this, I'm pretty sure. Like, he's documenting a real-life parade and then passing it off for production value. But, like, that's good producing i thought he was going to do a little more with it but like i was still thought that it upped the level of the movie and made their their dollars work for them and once they really got maniac cops face on screen and started to reveal backstory like i thought the 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 gore was amped up and just like the ludicrous nature of of his like form and story was made this whole thing like a more engaging endeavor that and the, the the final frame of the film which i won't give away it nails the ending for this kind of movie. Yeah, I've met William Lustig, and maybe I'll talk more about that with another movie in our, our tournament, but this certainly feels like a Larry Cohen movie in a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, writing and producing a movie will do that. It's an odd duck for sure. I do have a few more things to say about it since I'm championing it. It's part NYPD cop drama with its array of police characters. There's really not a major character in this movie who's not a cop. Bruce Campbell's wife and the reporter get one scene, but they're not really major characters. It's notable, I think, and I'm going to throw this out here and see if 
any any of this you know triggers any response from you guys but it's notable that the maniac cop targets innocent citizens even victims of crime for reasons that can't be directly tied to his backstory the movie makes glancing references to police brutality in general and towards black citizens specifically, as Vic talked about. And there's the clear sense that the department leadership and even the city's leadership is corrupt. Matt Cordell's The Maniac Cop, his backstory is certainly interesting. It seems like he was a true hero cop, even a celebrity cop, who pissed off the wrong people, powerful people. And now his indiscriminate rampage seems motivated by the feeling that the whole system, including the good guys, quote-unquote, the good guys, betrayed him. So in a roundabout way, he's targeting the higher-ups, but I still feel like a little conflicted or confused about the fact that his rage seems to be directed at the people of New York City in general. There's indications that he has some game plan. He, he, he seems to use the intelligence that his mole within the department gives him to frame Bruce Campbell, and then he comes after the brass, the top brass in the police station during the aforementioned St. Patrick's Day parade. But, of course, the character on screen never speaks or shows any guile or cunning that would really suggest that he's playing chess here. It's an odd plot with hints and allusions to complexity that are never fully explored. However, the movie is certainly unusual in the slasher genre for its NYPD-focused milieu and the vigilante anti-hero trappings that the killer gets. He's not quite on a crusade or he's not strictly a vengeful spirit per se, but there's enough kind of mad dog here with the character to make the maniac cop an oddly contradictory, difficult to get a read on figure. Well, you see, John, he's a, he's a maniac <laughs> and he's a cop. I think the, the part, the part where he kills like random people is, is the, the maniac part. Don't be glib, Vikram. <laughs> that was almost a Big Lebowski uh, quote there. No, seriously, guys, what, what do you what do you make of this idea that he he's a he's a character that should have a very clear revenge plan, but for some reason he's like, yeah, I'm just gonna kill the chick that just got mugged. You know, I mean, like what's going I- on there? that was like the first thing that really bumped me about it was I was like, this feels like random and meaningless. Like any backstory that you pack in at this point is going to be nonsense. But I also think that, you know, that we were watching another film, I think it was my bloody Valentine where I was discussing with my wife who again was like, who does not watch all these movies, but just happened to watch these two. And she was like, he has no plan. Like he's just like randomly like killing people. And I was like, well, he's a slasher. Like that, that's what makes him a slasher. Like if if he was if he was killing people methodically, he'd be a serial killer or like a, a stalker. Like that is a that's a different story. But to Vic's point, like I think that that's how you get the maniac and maniac cop. I mean, like that that's the thing is though that he is not a stalker. He is not an antihero. He's not dark man. He's a maniac cop. But we give him, we go to pains and do backflips to give him a backstory, a specific backstory. It's not like, oh, well, you know, the counselors let him drown. He was put in jail and betrayed by the department, you know, in the middle of his life, 
why he would be blaming like the average people that heretofore apparently he was protecting. I mean, I, I, I guess that there's certainly some brain damage and whatnot going on here through whatever resurrection the guy has. I just, I wish there, there was, there's no through line at all between the life that he led, what happened to him and suddenly kind of betraying the entire principle of being a cop in the first place. You've, you've identified a flaw in the narrative logic of Maniac Cop. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think the problem is you've analyzed the narrative more thoroughly than, than the writer, directors, or producers did. Gee, I wonder if that foreshadows our vote on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> I'll throw out, again, two sort of like anecdotal things that are unrelated to your larger point, um, because I don't have the answer there. One is I, I want to point out that I was pretty sure I had seen Maniac Cop about a third of the way through. I was like, I was like, I have, I'm like, I have not seen this movie, but there was a movie I very strongly identified it with. And I had to go down the rabbit hole to figure out that I apparently watched the movie Psycho Cop 2 several times. As what? A kid, which is like a it's like a it's like a cheesecake infused movie about a killer cop. And apparently it's a it's a sequel. And in, in this particular sequel, it was um, it was like about a bunch of like dudes having like a bachelor party in an office building and, and psycho cop comes and, and murders them. So, A, you can see why I watched that on repeat at 14 years old. And B, you can see how I got it confused with Maniac Cop. So I was a little disappointed at first, but I got over it. I have a um, pretty because, deep knowledge of 80s movies and that one got past me. Well, check out Psycho Cop 2, or at least the trailer, when you, when you get a second, just to familiarize yourself with the competition. Um, the other thing is that I, I think this movie should be the starting point that we get like a Ted Raimi bell or something. Yes. That rings. Every time you feature a movie that Ted Raimi's in. I mean, like, I knew the dude was, was everywhere, but I think this is yes. at least his third appearance after Blood Rage and... Midnight Meat Train, I, but I would not be surprised if I there are others, and I can tell you that there are many, many more appearances of Ted Raimi on the way. It, it's just so weird that, like, in the haunted house genre, I don't think we encountered him once, but he is everywhere in this genre. I know. I'm so glad you brought that up, and we really do need to have the where's Ted, you know, where's Waldo game here, because it's insane it has struck me this guy pops up across the budget range in all of these films for 20 years and nobody thinks of ted Raimi as having a particularly prolific career it's mind-blowing i will point out in the haunted house genre ted Raimi is featured in a little film called darkness rising that i wrote is he really yeah i forgot that what was it like working with ted Raimi? I did not get to work with him. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, the director is just friends with him. Mm. And so he we, we basically crafted a wraparound story that took them about uh, four hours to shoot so that we could put Ted Raimi on the, the poster for name recognition. So <laughs> Slasher icon, Ted Raimi. <laughs> yeah. That's what's great. He's he's not even like a character actor. He's just like a he's like a cameo actor. Like he made a career out of just appearing for movies like minutes at a time. Just handing out condoms in a restaurant. Yeah. That was just that was just, that was his very first role, by the way. 
Yeah, he, he's he's an extra. Yeah, it's unbelievable. But uh, but he but he still, you know, he registers on screen. Well, we have plenty of time to talk about Ted Raimi's impact on on oh, yes. slasher films. Let's drop the curtain on this one. Let's cast the vote. Any further thoughts on Maniac Cop as you cast your vote? I'm just curious, Rich, in Psycho Cop 2, is there a good like through line for why the Psycho Cop is killing the people in the at the bachelor party? Oh, uh, yeah, he's a Psycho Cop. Uh, I got you, okay. Uh <laughs> This conversation has swayed me. I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse my initial vote uh, away from Maniac Cop and vote for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> All right, Rich. <laughs> yes, my my thought on Maniac Cop is that I'm going to vote for Halloween. All right. Yeah. I mean, it was inevitable. It's done. Goodbye, Maniac Cop. On to the next matchup. And uh, let's see if this one is a little more interesting. I have a feeling it is. Let's reload because I have a feeling that my bloody Valentine 3D up against Wes Craven, Wes Craven's new nightmare. This could get ugly, folks. And I'm going to need all the liquid courage in the world to square off with Vic and maybe even Rich. So let's get it on. Wes Craven. I'm embarrassed for you, John. What? What? Wes Craven. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I know. It's a legend, okay? <laughs> I corrected it, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think you've already betrayed your feelings about the film. I love Wes Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> Wes Studi. <laughs> all right, we all love Wes Studi. I don't even know who that is. He was uh, Magua in uh, Last of the Mohicans. He's a Native American actor who's in everything. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that guy. All right, as things totally go off the rails here, we'll put a merciful end to part one of this episode. See you next time for two more matchups. Until then, adios. Adios.